Hi y'all, it's Tuesday. Mm, it is really Tuesday. <laughs> and we're gonna be talking about Michael Jackson's legacy today on his 10 year anniversary of his death, de Blasio's text messages with his son, and Elaine Welteroth is here, who's fantastic. Yes, well, it's another beautiful day in New York City. So pretty. We'll see you on the timeline. Should we, we get see them to on the it. timeline? Yes. Great. <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And it's Tuesday. And it's Tuesday. We love Tuesdays here. We love Tuesdays so much. I'm <laughs> not gonna say it. I'm not I was gonna like, say what do you, every freaking Tuesday. Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> the longest, the day furthest from the it weekend. Yeah, I mean. Which whew, means it's the over. hardest day, and once you get through this, it's over. And All exactly. Um, so it's like early midweek of officially New York City Pride Week. Yes. Mm -hmm. How are you faring so far? I can't wait to not be gay. <laughs> it's gonna, Clock strikes midnight yes. on Sunday. I like pumpkin glitter. Like <laughs> I can put on a hat, have like khakis. It's really gonna be great. Yeah, but no, I'm pushing through. You know, we are incredibly busy here in New York. Everyone wants to talk about Pride. There's an event every night and you have to be gay the whole time and it's a lot, but how are you doing? I'm good, I mean, similarly uh, overly committed, happy to be overly committed. Yes. Um, also trying to, you know, stay hydrated, get mm -hmm. some rest, eat some good meals. Moisturize. Meditate, moisturize, mm -hmm. all the things Taking that we can do. Taking care of there. yourself. Exactly. Even during Pride Month. And not Precisely. drinking too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, no promises, no promises. Friday, I see you girl, cocktails. <laughs> well, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio tweeted this. Lucky to have the talented debater Dante de Blasio helping me get ready for Wednesday with screenshots of their alleged exchange. Mm, it started. Dante, the debate's coming up. I'm preparing intensely, but I must admit I'm a little nervous. What advice do you have for me? Thanks, love you, Dad. Dante responded, hey, Dad, I'm glad you've asked. I've got a few ideas. Well, Doug Gordon tweeted a sentiment shared by a lot of people. This is the fakest thing ever posted on the internet. <laughs> I mean. I have some sympathy, because I think what happened here is, you know, they needed a shtick, they wanted some social content, so some teams went to Dante and said, hey Dante girl, can you give us a few lines of what you'd say to your dad? And they scripted it, but never got his final approval, and we got that. I mean, the thing that really got me was the like, gee dad, yes. I've been waiting for you to ask, like, said no millennial, no youth, teenager. Gen Z person Ooh, ever, you're I the feel. son of Bill de Blasio. And like that family is so empowered to like mm -hmm. do things uh, when not ass, like <clears throat> run for president. And <laughs> you know, the son would just jump up and say, hey dad, this is what I think about this. So this is kind of just a weird thing to do, but we can tell that it's, he's a parent though. You can tell sense. he's a parent. And it's just like these ways in which parents construct Sentences that you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's my, my dad texting me. Right to there. me, the, the thing that really brought it to that like parent texting style um, was when he signed, de Blasio signed the first text, like, love dad. <laughs> yes. It reminded me of like, you know, once in a while getting a text message from my mom where she's like, XO, mm -hmm. mom. And I'm like, you don't have to sign every single text it message. It literally says your name above. Like, <laughs> like it says, mom. Hello. Whatever. So, well, let's take it to the timeline. What's the biggest tell that a parent sent a text? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Well, switching gears a bit this morning, the Associated Press tweeted, as the 10th anniversary of Michael Jackson's death approaches, his music and memorabilia remain popular despite the recent molestation accusations in the Leaving Neverland documentary. And the Shadow League columnist Karen Phillips tweeted, a decade after Michael Jackson's death, we're all being forced to confront the hard truths of his legacy. Joining us to discuss Jackson's legacy is Karen Phillips. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. So what has been the narrative around Michael Jackson in the 10 years since his death? Well, this has been interesting, you know, actually, um, you know, on, on a day like this, we all remember where we were the day Michael Jackson passed. Like for me, I always remember that Farrah Fawcett also died this day 10 years ago, uh, but she kind of got swept over a rug and everyone forgot about her as soon as we got the news about Michael Jackson. I also remember how like the internet broke for a little while. Um, because everybody was trying to get online and see if this actually grew after I believe TMZ broke it. Um, and, you know, you know, we, we for a while, a couple of years after it, it was just thoughts. Uh, the, I remember the big funeral, uh, playing his music, um, all the humanitarian acts that Michael Jackson did. Um, but, you know, earlier this year when the Never uh, uh, Leaving Neverland uh, documentary dropped, HBO series, Four Hours, um, it brought back a lot of old stuff uh, of allegations and the trial and all of this. And, you know, it, it caused some visceral reactions, but that's what happens when you have arguably the biggest 
uh, pop music star, whatever uh, category you want to put Michael Jackson in, he's probably number one. Uh, we have, and we've been having a lot of conversations. Uh, and, and with my piece, what I wanted to write was that, look, if we're going to talk about Michael Jackson and his whole scope and his whole career, um, we can't ignore this because this wasn't just recent just because this documentary came out this year. If you're old enough, if you're a certain age, if you're my generation older, you remember the 90s. And these allegations have been going on for decades. Like this wasn't just something new that just popped up recently. Um, this had been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah, this has been going on for a very long time. And yet we're in this new or different cultural moment, right, in the Me Too movement where we're thinking and talking about these kinds of allegations differently. Um, what impact did the documentary have on Jackson's legacy? With, with the reaction from it, I, I think it, it brought back a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, the trial, like I said, the allegations to a generation who was unaware in a generation who was not old enough to grasp what was, what was going on. Like, you know, we live in this era of, of council culture, which is really interesting. And like I said, my piece is a slippery slope. Uh, but also, if you weren't there, like really, really old enough in the 90s to remember all the cases and all the little idiosyncrasies and weirdness about Michael Jackson, especially during the 90s, the vitiligo, skin disease, or was he bleaching? Um, it was with the, the, all the different trips overseas with little kids. I remember Emmanuel Lewis he had on his lap, Macaulay Culkin, um, all of these different situations and his relationship, especially with black America and the black community was always uh, a different because we remember him as, you know, the little kid with the Afro and a big nose from Gary, Indiana. And then 20, 30 years later, he's light skinned with long, curly, greasy hair. Um, so like Michael Jackson, there are a lot of different eras when you think of him and you're old enough to remember him. And, and if you're a uh, generation Y, generation Z or whatever the label is, cause I feel like it changes every couple of minutes. And this is new to you. If you're in the early twenties or you're a teenager, your image of Michael Jackson is probably different. So I'm sure this documentary kind of just blew your mind and you felt like maybe someone was trying to tear down an icon. But if you're a little older, you remember uh, Michael Jackson has a very complicated legacy, and it's always kind of been that way. Mm, complicated legacy. That reminds me of a different documentary about R. Kelly that also came out this year, and we saw tremendous fallout from the release of that film. How do those two documentaries compare to one another? Well, well they're both different, and I think one of the things that, that, that caused some reactions is that you, you had two huge musical artists. Um, two of the greats of all time, two of the greats of all time who also work together, um, two black men from the Midwest. Um, one dealt with, you know, ongoing situation for years and years uh, dealing with, with younger women, with R. Kelly, and then with Michael Jackson. Uh, the allegations are always with younger boys. The thing, I think, uh, when you think about the timing, it was the R. Kelly fallout and all of this stuff happened, and then it was like, boom, a couple months later, it was like Michael Jackson. So it was back to back. Like I said, we're dealing with cancel culture, and it was a lot. It was a lot of information for people to take in. If you were old enough to remember all of the uh, going back to Aaliyah with R. Kelly and that stuff, to all this stuff with Michael Jackson, it was it was like a, a stroll down memory lane. If you're younger, it was just a whole bunch of new information that's coming at you, and you're kind of just like, whoa, what is going on here? And I think the biggest difference between the two um, you know, he's been having this conversation is that, you know, Michael Jackson isn't here. We're celebrating 10 years that he's no longer been on this earth. People are a lot more um, emotional and a lot more compassionate when they say, you know, someone's not here to defend themselves. Right. Michael Jackson gone. He can't make any statements. But to that, I say I remember a lot of public stations and him statements and him going on Oprah and him even having this like long commercial. I think it was on ABC a long time ago where he came out and made these, uh, you know, he spoke to the public and said this wasn't true and was talking about how these were lies where, you know, we think about R. Kelly with Gail King a couple of months ago and how bad that whole situation all went where you have somebody who's still dealing with it right now in our face. And then when you think about Michael Jackson, he's not here um, to, to say anything or, you know, to defend himself since he's been gone for 10 years. Well, it is certainly a lot to think about today. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Alex Silverman tweeted, when a Trump administration official heard a pride flag would fly on the National Monument at Stonewall, he and others made sure that the U.S. government would be able to say that it's not theirs. Corbin Heyer tweeted, 
To avoid flying a gay pride flag on federal property, the Trump administration gifted the flag and flagpole outside the Stonewall National Monument to the New York Parks Department, internal emails show. Rob Hodakainen reported on the 992 emails obtained through a FOIA request for e and &E News and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Now, this story starts in the fall of 2017. What kicked off this email exchange and subsequent gifting of the flag and flagpole? Well, it's a long, complicated story. Actually, it began in 2016 when President Obama designated uh, Stonewall as the first national monument to recognize the LGBTQ community. There was a lot of excitement uh, in the Obama administration. This came just uh, a year after the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage. And then the Trump administration comes along, and they're obviously taking this, uh, this very differently. So uh, what happens is the gay activists in New York City ask uh, to fly a flag, saying it only makes sense to fly a flag at Stonewall. And the local superintendent says, sure, that's no problem at all. We own the flagpole. Let's do it. The National Park Service orders the flag for $66. They fly it uh, at the end of September in 2017. Then there's going to be a ceremony to uh, honor the flag raising. And when the Department of Interior, which oversees the Park Service, got wind of this, they demanded an immediate explanation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So today, where does that flag sit on the, the property? Uh, it's in Christopher Park. And what, what was interesting, the Park Service relied on a survey from 2015 that actually shows the flagpole outside of the federal property, just barely. But um, the Park Service was assuming, at least the local superintendent was assuming that it was property of the Park Service. After the questions were raised in Washington, then they used the survey to uh, say that, no, it's not ours. We better transfer it to the city of New York. So that's what happened. Now the city of New York owns both the flag and the flagpole. But really, the National Park Service got to have it both ways because the flag is still there. But they can say that it's not owned by the federal government. Now, as all of this was happening, uh, what did uh, Parks Department officials uh, and other folks involved um, have to say about it? Well, it, uh, it set off this panic in the National Park Service. Uh, 992 pages of emails uh, will attest to that because uh, people from New York, Washington, Philadelphia were involved. And uh, by the end of the day, uh, Todd Willens, who is now uh, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt's uh, chief of staff, issued the order that the flag had to come down. But in the meantime, there's all this back and forth. People in New York were confused because they thought they uh, owned the flag and the flagpole. So they come up with a series of talking points to explain that the National Park Service uh, never owned uh, the flagpole. And as one of the officials in New York was trying to get the party line on this, she said, oh, we gifted the flagpole to the city of New York because we partner with them. And then she ends her email with saying, boy, they. Hmm. Well, it is a, quite a story. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, you're welcome. Glad to be with you. And coming up, Zach is talking with actor Arturo Castro and famed editor Elaine Walteroth. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Woo Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets, and we're just going to do this. Woo. Yes, hotness right here. Y'all ready from hotness? <laughs> Great. <laughs> Rob, sorry, it's just a sorry. fun day today here on Tuesday. Yes. Rob, you tweeted. You know you're getting older when you hear some shit in your house move by itself and don't even flinch. I fucking wish a ghost would. Come on, I don't have time to play games anymore. Either let's settle it like adults or move on. <laughs> Ghosts, come for me. 
It's really, there is a moment in your life where you stop getting scared of the boogeyman in your closet and think, you know what, you made it this far. If you're gonna fight me, just fight me, girl. You're like, I'm too tired. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm too tired, I don't care. I don't get out of bed to go to the bathroom. I'm not getting out of bed to save my life. I'm not getting out of bed. (laughs) I'm already here. There we are. Ghosts, you have an open invitation. To come to my house. (laughs) Devin, you tweeted, people are very scared about getting older, but there's a lot of good deals that start at 65. That is, yeah, sure. You could go to the movies for like, $5, $10, $5, Girl, $10, how often did you go to the movies? <laughs> <laughs> how often you at the movie theater like, you know oh, I really wish I could go for $5. Exactly. I'm 65 and I have my deals and my AARP card not calling you, you know to what? join me. The fun fact, the world won't be around that much. So, good job. Also true. Also true. <laughs> One fall, you treat it. The mail. You have been chosen for jury duty on me. Thanks for reaching out. Will this be a paid opportunity? Why, yes, it will. You will get $7 for your service. That's fun. Is that really how much it costs? I know. I'm not sure if it costs that much. I think the most recent time I did jury duty, I got like 40 bucks. That will get you a bottle of water in New York City. I mean, pretty much with like a little bit more, you know? CX, you tweeted. Y'all ever kill a bug and wonder if their mama waiting for them to come home, but they dead? This was me in high school. I read a book about monks who wouldn't kill bugs because they were like people and had consciousness. So they would like, before they built a building, they would move all the bugs out and then build. So then I spent a few years not killing bugs because I thought they were going home to mom. Um, yeah, I, I don't <laughs> you do not with the bugs. Like I'm a serial killer. Alex was no posting problems. content on her Instagram <laughs> of her trying to kill a spider all weekend. So you there know, was, yeah. the bug killer, Alex Berg. The spider mm. is still at large. Mm, watch so. out world. <laughs> the tweet of the day, you ready? Yeah. Comes from Matthew. All I'm saying is we have 16 parts built around Mickey Mouse, and he's only been in 11 films. Whereas Meryl Streep has been in over 65, and she has zero theme parks. Hallelujah, amen. Let's begin the uh, not the GoFundMe, but the whatever. We whatever it requires. Happen. Meryl Universe, Meryl World, Meryl Land. It needs to happen. You know, I preemptively tweeted about this, and my Twitter blew up, and it's incredible. So let's take it right back to the timeline. What should the rides be called at Meryl Streep's theme park? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. What would you do? Uh, the Big Little Coaster. <laughs> After Big Little Lies. If- and here's the thing about it is that you would scream exactly how she screams oh in the first God. episode at that dinner table Iconic. in Big Little Lies. And would you be memed afterwards? Like, of course, you would, it would take pictures of you in the middle, maybe a oh, GIF, you know, all God, that. Yeah, I love that. What, what about you? What would be your right? Mine would be Devil, War, Devil Wears Prada themed, and it would be called Runway, and you would be taken up to the top of the tower, <laughs> and right before you meet with uh, Miranda Priestley, you're dropped, and brought back up and dropped again. That's my dream. Um, I actually think that, like, whoever could commission such a thing, like, Call us. Pay us. Like, okay. we have ideas for Pay you. Pay us for ideas. Great ideas. are cute. I love them. Yes. Well, <laughs> until then, coming up, you get to see Zach sit down with author and former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, Elaine Walteroff. But up next, we are going live from the district. More mouse. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Paul. So let's jump in here. Here's a tweet from Adolfo Flores. Hundreds of migrant children are being moved out of a filthy, overcrowded border patrol station. Paul, where are these migrant children going now? So from here, they'll be moving on to uh, refugee resettlement facilities or being spread between a a few different facilities. And uh, a lot of these are contracted out to third parties, sometimes Christian groups. Uh, I mean, essentially trying to find places for these uh, people to to live in proper living conditions until some sort of more long-term solution can be worked out. And and I should note, as an aside, uh, these facilities are also the at the center of a massive funding battle right now in Congress because uh, basically the government is running out of money to handle this entire system. And I mean, literally any day now, essentially, we're, they're going to run out of money and Congress is working to pass a new appropriations bill to fund this, to give an injection of resources into the system, but they have not reached a deal yet. And we are still waiting on that. Yesterday on the show, uh, we talked with one of the lawyers who had gone into one of these facilities, um, and she talked about how this facility was meant for like 100 people, and there were actually like hundreds and hundreds of kids. So um, are any kids being left behind at this Clint, Texas facility? So as of the most recent numbers that I saw, there were still a few dozen kids who were there, but they have overwhelmingly uh, moved these children out of this facility. As you would say, it was like, you know, three to one of what, what this place was built for. 
And after this came out, after the lawyers publicized the condition of these children who were, I mean, this squalid condition where people didn't have enough soap or toothpaste, uh, 12-year-olds looking after three-year-olds, I mean, just uh, heart-wrenching scenes. Uh, since then, the government has moved out, as, from what we can tell, the vast majority of these children to other facilities. Mm. And was the motive to move the children pushed by the reporting we saw yesterday come out across mm-hmm. the nation? I mean, yeah, this is part of the problem is that we can't just waltz into these facilities and and examine uh, how everyone is being treated. But as part of a legal settlement from the 1990s, the lawyers who represent uh, these children can go in and they have been really at the front lines of uh, raising the alarm bells, basically, about the conditions that people have been in. You mentioned uh, earlier you talked a little bit about some of the other facilities that these uh, kids are being moved to. Um, Is there anything else that we know about them? I mean, we've we've had certain sporadic reports and sometimes you see leaks, but as I say, we don't really have sort of a holistic way to go in and examine facility by facility uh, to see how things are. We, We have been relying on the first-hand accounts of the lawyers who have gone in to keep an eye and, and to, to be, they're, they're basically the only ones legally allowed to go in and examine what has been happening, and we've been learning a lot through them. Mm. Well, moving on to another story, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both want to wipe out billions of dollars of student loan debt, but there's a deliberate divide in their policies about who should get student debt forgiveness. So what is the divide between their plans? Well, uh, Elizabeth Warren has a means-tested plan that would relieve about $600 billion worth of student debt. So means-testing, meaning, of course, if you make um, $80,000 a year, you might have uh, fifty grand, a little bit less of, that, of your debt forgiven. Whereas if you make $200,000 a year, you'll have less debt forgiven. And then, of course, it progressively moves up. Anything above $250,000, you actually don't qualify for student loan forgiveness in Elizabeth Warren's plan. Bernie Sanders' plan can be summed up much quicker, it's just that all student loan debt is forgiven across the country. This is uh, $1.6 trillion, I believe, uh, worth of debt. So, I mean, in Sandersian style, uh, just going and saying, we're doing it all. We're just going to get rid of all of it. (laughs) And what do these two different approaches tell us about each candidate? Yeah, I mean, Bernie now for a long time has been pushing these very progressive policies in American politics, and he, he, this is what he does. I mean, he takes, uh, takes complex issues and boils them down into policies that are very simple to convey. So, for example, you know, healthcare, what's more complicated than healthcare? And yet you can still say everyone gets free healthcare in one sentence, and it's something digestible that people can understand. So this has been long been his approach, and he's basically... Uh, brushed off critics uh, uh, who say that, you know, you need to go into more detail and all this. I mean, and in fairness, uh, if there's anything we've learned from recent elections, is that you don't actually need to give a lot of detail or even plan realistic things uh, in election campaigns. It's more of a battle of ideas than details. Now, that said, Elizabeth Warren has gone the totally opposite direction and has branded herself as a policy wonk and really has put a lot of effort into putting out detailed uh, policy proposals, and it has really corresponded with her having a major rebound in the polls. And I mean, she has really uh, gone from also ran to contender status on the strength of this policy wonk persona. So uh, with Warren's plan, you get the uh, the finite details. With Sanders, all of your student debt is just gone. Um, it, this might be an obvious question, but uh, do you have a sense of which one of these plans might be more popular or at least is getting uh, more traction? <sighs> It's hard to say. I mean, I think in this issue specifically, Elizabeth Warren is going to have a much easier time defending this plan because there, I mean, there's all, this get into very loaded issues, but when you talk about student debt forgiveness, which is obviously a very real issue in America, and I mean, it's essentially a, a noose around an entire generations of people's necks because they have so much debt that they cannot even begin to, uh, to have the equity to build a life. Anyway, this, these, are, these are obviously very powerful, compelling issues. However, you also have uh, a competing class interests, where it's generally rich white people who are going to college. So if this program, which is supposed to be winning over progressives, is predominantly benefiting rich white people, that is obviously a massive problem. And Elizabeth Warren's plan uh, goes further in reducing or, or blocking that criticism because, as I say, it is means-tested. It does eventually cap out at $250,000 a year of income. So over the long term, my guess would be that Elizabeth Warren 
is kind of building up some uh, some sturdier proposals that'll be would be more resistant to attack. Mm-mm. Well, thank you for those details on these plans because, you know, as someone with student loan debt, I'm very invested in this conversation. Same. Same. <laughs> but before we let you yeah. go, Paul, we have a very important question for you. At the Meryl Streep theme park ride, what would you want to see? What would be the <laughs> ride you'd want to create? Yeah, I was, I, I was really torn on this. I was going through the Meryl Streep cinematic universe and trying <laughs> to pick out uh, which way I wanted to go. Uh, I think I decided uh, the post, I want to go with that, where you basically get to walk into the Washington Post newsroom and just boss people around. That would be fun for me. <laughs> that sounds very cathartic. And wow. should I pay to do that? Yes, Why not? Like that. We're going to make that happen for you, Paul. We're going to make that happen for you. <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Good talking with you. Up next, I'm talking with Arturo Castro about his new show, Alterni- Alternatino. Stay tuned. It's going to be fun. Alternatino. I'm here with Arturo Castro. You know him from Broad City and Narcos, and now he's the creator, executive producer, writer, and star of Comedy Central's newest <laughs> sketch show, Alternatino. With Ad- I cannot stop laughing Sorry. at you. Right now. It's just like there's so much. It's so much. We're so busy. Thank How you are you so doing much. today? I'm doing so good. Thank you. So, you know what? I I love this studio for you. you loves love it for you. Loves, loves it for me. me. Loves it for everybody. Where did you get that line from? I don't know. From you, like five seconds ago. You walked in and you're already stealing my line. Oh, Is man. that how you do the show? You exactly. I just oh. steal everybody else's ideas and put another face on it. Thank you so much for having me. This thank is great. Thank you. Well, yeah. I, you know, your show premiered last week, yes. and I have been searching for bad reviews all over the internet and cannot find one. Oh, you what? should talk to my mom. Your mom? No, I'm joking. No, no, okay, she likes it. She's like, what is with the cursing? What's the. And I'm like, why are you speaking English? This is weird. Oh my gosh. Well, let's take a look at it before we jump in. Sure. <laughs> so just listen. When boys and girls get a little older, they start getting interested in one another. Right. You know, and non-binary people, agendered, intergendered, FTX, gender fluid people. What? There's more than just boys and girls now, Dad. And they're not girls, they're women. Y- yeah, okay, okay sure. <clears throat> well, my point is that sex is uh, it's a very important decision. How are you defining sex? Sex is different things to different people. I guess when, when a penis goes into a vagina, <laughs> what a line to end it with it, right? <laughs> Sex is defined different ways for different people. Yeah, totally agree. So what have the reactions been that stood out to you? Oh, you know what? So we have this uh, paper towel sketch in the first episode, which sort of, I don't know if you remember, like Trump, like sort of like basketball throwing yeah. that. And I was like, what, what are you going to fix with that? So we were like, what if they're magical? So we have this big musical number where you can fix everything with, that's there, there it is, mm-hmm. right there. There we go. Um, and some of the best reactions I've gotten from, are from Puerto Ricans, meaning like I never thought I'd be able to laugh at Hurricane Maria mm. and sending it to their families and becoming a sort of healing tool. Mm-hmm. And that to me means something. You know, that means... Something that can transcend just being funny, that's sort of like the best part. And my uncle gave me a hundred bucks and said, you're doing good, kid, so that's good. That is a way to do it. <laughs> and he's, he also thinks I make a better looking woman than I do a man, so that's cool. Oh my God, I think you're beautiful as all these people. I think and you're all beautiful. all your gender identities. Thank you so much. I love this. I think you're beautiful now and in, on TV and oh, in everything. Yeah. Cut <laughs> the interview, we're done here. <laughs> I'm kidding. But no, you know, you bring up tragedy. How do you find comedy in tragi- uh, tra- uh, tragic situations like, you know, what happened? happened in Puerto Rico and other things you explore in the show. Um, family separation. I don't, you know, I I like to exaggerate. I like to take things that either scare me or enrage me. And I exaggerate them in order for me to laugh at them because then it takes away their power. And it also starts a conversation. Like today we have, uh, on today's episode, we have a, a, a sketch about cage-free kids. Mm-hmm. Basically a new ICE program making cage-free no antibiotic, grass-fed children. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But you should, and also, but you should also be like, it, that is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what you're saying. If you support these policies, the children are animals. So I was like, let's take it further, you know. Um, so that's how we explored it. But we explored it with a kind heart. We never make fun of the tragedy itself. We just like put an absurdist turn um, on the people that promote it. You know? mm-hmm, I love that. So you play 45 different characters in yes. the show. Do any of them pop up in your everyday life? I'm telling you, I think you might think I'm lying, but like Jekka, 
Right, the the redhead. The thing is, she you the, love her. I love her because <laughs> I got to shave my legs for the first time in my life, and it was very complicated. I don't know. Have you ever shaved your legs? Yes, I sure have. Oh my god, they're shaving right now. I'm how kidding. do you how do you get the back thing? You know, I think help. I'm not very hairy. You're not very no. hairy. Are you a hairy person? Well, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, every, every now and then, because like so her lines are like, "Hey, bitch," and every uh-huh. now and then, I, I walk into a room feeling very jacked, mm-hmm. just like, "Hey, bitch," you know. <laughs> you, uh, is it like order? coffee at yeah, Starbucks. It's like, like, hey, Starbucks. <laughs> um, that's just what my vibe is like. <laughs> oh my god. So, <laughs> of, Do you love that for me? I love this for you. Thank you. I love it for you. I have not laughed this much in a while. That's and great. in Trump's America, you need to laugh. You like need this. to, yeah. So, you know, you have really famous roles from Narcos and Broad City. Right. Do you ever get recognized uh, as those roles out in public? And which one yes. comes up more? I mean, I live in Brooklyn, which is sort of the uh, Broad City epicenter. Mm-hmm. But if you're ever by the financial districts, like, bro, bro, I love that Narcos, bro. And you're like, thanks. I don't know why you're yelling at me. You're my, you're my. <laughs> no, but you know, it's funny because like, you know, Broad City fans, I love them, but they're very like, there's just no boundaries. Yeah. Like, oh my God, can you kiss my baby and my dog at kiss the same babies. time? And, or like, wow. you know what I mean? Like, they're just like, and Narcos people, so I play the bad guy. They're yeah. all like, they're so afraid Mr. of you. Castro, can I take a picture? I was oh like, God. no, you can't, Cabrón. Have you ever gone into a gay bar since being in the Broad City? Yes. And you love it. And they oh like, my God. oh my God. I'm telling you, one of the happiest days of my entire life was the first gay pride parade we did on the Broad City mm-hmm. float. Because I've never seen like so many millions of people being, it was just such a love fest all around. Mm-hmm. It also sort of felt like we were, had gone to the moon and come back and somebody mm-hmm. was throwing us a parade sort of thing. It was like, everybody, and everybody's like throwing shirts and like just saying, saying how much they love Jaime. And that meant a lot to me, particularly for, I think if you're a kid, if you're Latino and you and you're growing up in a very close society and suddenly you see somebody that looks like you mm-hmm. and he's gay and he's having the time of his life and dressed mm-hmm. however he wants, that has become very inspiring to some kids yeah. and I'm like, that is cool, yeah. you know? And I also, yeah, I just love Jaime so much, you know? But he, I mean, he's a wonderful character. Like He's based on he's, a real guy. Really? Who? Yeah, a guy named Jaime who's Abby's best friend. His voice is a little deeper so he talks a little more like this. Oh, Papi, hello, how are you? you know, but I just brought it up a little bit because I thought that was funny. <laughs> you could do that so well. <laughs> I do that in the mirror every I, day. I'm going to take classes from you. So in this new show, you play a ton of roles yes. in terms of like you're the executive producing, you're writing. Mm. Which hat do you enjoy wearing most? I mean, obviously I enjoy uh, performance uh, a lot but I, there's something about being in the writer's room and sort of it, it, you go to work and you make each other laugh all day and you just top those right mm-hmm. and then you take that idea that was in your head you give it to these other professionals and they're like oh I know how to build this mm-hmm. so it's almost like somebody went to you when you were like three years old like what do you want to be today and you're like oh no a pirate mm-hmm. alright sure let's build a pirate ship and you're like we're building a pirate ship, you know? Sometimes I'll just build, a, yeah. we'll just pitch sketches just because I want to be a robot, you know? Are you surprised that people say yes to these sketches sometimes? I knew, yeah, sometimes I'd like put them through just to like mess with people, man. Test boundaries. Yeah. Like what you Nobody, do. I was like, we really need this helicopter dildo to be in this one scene. Helicopter And they're like, mm, and just over the phone, they're like, okay, so we see where everything else is going. So where's this? I was like, without that, there is no show. And like, they they go with it. So watch for helicopter dildo. You know so what? I'm so sequel. We have to wrap this up, even though uh, I can just all day because helicopter dildos are things I did not know I was saying on a Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. It's Tuesday morning. <laughs> well, you can see Arturo and all of his alter egos on Tuesdays on with uh, in Alternatino with Arturo Castro at 10.30 p.m. on Comedy Central. You I got that. that down. Yeah, I love it for you. I love it for all of you. Thank you so much, guys. Oh I hope gosh. you watch the show. Don't go away. Up next, I'm sitting down with Elaine Walteroff, so stay tuned. I'm so excited to be sitting down with Elaine Welteroth, youngest editor-in-chief in Condé Nast history and judge on Project Runway and now author of the book, More Than Enough, Claiming Space for Who You Are No Matter What They Say. Yeah, It's so nice to have my sister here. Y'all don't know this, but we're related. Mm-hmm. Except and he got the good eyelashes. I did, but I bought them at a store. I won't say only <laughs> <laughs> But before we jump into questions, shoes. Camera, shoot, we have to pop. Oh, who, oh, 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 oh. who did these? These are incredible. Thank you. These are actually Brother Vellies, and they are made by one of my close girlfriends, Aurora James. Okay. She's a CFDA designer. Amazing. And she was actually a guest judge on Project Runway. Really? Yeah, on the oh Fashion my... for a Cause issue. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we were going to jump to Project Runway in a bit, but I want to hear about the book first. Because, yeah. you know, us mixed people, we love talking to each other, and we don't have enough stories out there of ourselves. Yeah. So what made you want to write this book now? and share your story? Man, I mean, I think there is an urgency mm-hmm. to 
writing this book because we live in a world that is, it's really an 180 character world. Yeah. You know, where we scroll each other's success stories online in real time, but we're only getting the shiniest slice Mm -hmm. of the story. And I think that as someone who's been held up as a trailblazer Mm -hmm. in my industry for the opportunities that I've had, and, you know, I felt like I owe this next generation of leaders coming up behind mm. me more mm. than what I can fit in a tweet yeah. or you know, in a pithy Instagram caption or a filtered photo that makes everything look yeah. picture perfect and simple. And you know, the reality is um, there are universal truths mm-hmm. uh, that are left out of the success stories that we read about in headlines and highlight reels. Mm. And I think as someone who could have used uh, an example someone else's blueprint, another woman of color, young woman of color in a leadership position. I could have used uh, some tools, some stories, uh, some advice when I was in my 20s climbing my ranks, climbing the ranks in media. And so I am hoping to not only share my story, but really to share some universal truths. Mm. I do believe there are universal truths that are locked up in the stories that women never tell. And too often young Black women are told that you're not enough. Um, your story is not re- important enough. And and I hope that this book just uh, completely pushes back against all of that. And I hope it becomes an invitation for other women to tell their stories too. Mm. And I really hope it's a conversation starter. I love starter. that, an invitation to tell stories. Speaking of storytelling, Ava DuVernay, she yeah. wrote the foreword. Yes. Tell me about your relationship Queen. and how you got her to do this. Because you two together, icons supporting icons, legends Aww. supporting legends. Well, listen, Ava DuVernay, spoiler alert, she makes a cameo in the book. Oh. And so once you read the book cover to cover, you will see why it had to start with mm-hmm. her because it ends with her, um, mm-hmm. with her voice. Okay. And she is someone that I look up to and admire and have had a, the privilege of getting to know. And she really helped me in this critical turning point in my career um, to be braver. Mm. And I think we all need that person in our corner Mm -hmm. who can see uh, the bigness of your possibilities when sometimes you can't. And she was that for me. And so I I told her, I was like, you know, listen, when I asked her to write the foreword, I was like, I recognize you're the busiest person in the world (laughs) in Hollywood. (laughs) Incredibly busy, but, and no pressure if you cannot do this. But I will tell you, there is either a forward by Ava DuVernay or there is no forward from her. Oh, I love that. The gauntlet just dropped. And then she said, yes. That's and incredible. I just freaked out. I was so happy about that. Um, and it's really her spirit that I wanted to, I, I wanted to capture her voice and her spirit in this book. So that was just like the cherry yeah. on top for that's, me. That's amazing. Amazing yeah. friends, friends helping each other out. And speaking of that, Lupita Nyong'o, you yes. recently talked about the book with her. Yes. What's that relationship like? Because she's also incredibly busy and out here killing the game. In order to have a book like this, which is not a fluff Mm -hmm. book, out in the world in a year's time, it takes many, many, many miracles. And now that I'm in the point of pushing this baby out into the world, I'm just encountering even more miracles, like having my friends, having people like Lupita clear their schedule, say yes, and and show up for me. And it's it's really the, the biggest dream of my book is to start conversations with women, um, the kinds of conversations that I wish people were having in public discourse when I was coming up. And Lupita and I met on, um, funnily enough, we had a fateful, like, first date. Okay. Well, we've known each Ooh. other for we've known each other for a few years mm-hmm. and we have a mutual hairstylist in Vernon Francois mm-hmm. and so we've, you know, spent nights curled up on his couch in LA watching TV, hanging out Chic. And, then we, and then like karaoke. I'm the karaoke queen. I mean, oh my that's God. something you left out of my bio, but <laughs> I sure did. I'm, I am the karaoke queen and so I love to have people over for karaoke parties and she came over to one and she I have oh to say God. I had to hand over my crown. She might be actually the karaoke really? queen. She's amazing at it so we've had fun interactions with each Uh other but when we really kind of really connected on a soul level was when we were both on a plane from new york to la Mm. for the oscars and she just so happened to be serendipitously sitting next to me and when i tell you we talked every second of that journey Uh about everything Mm -hmm. the deepest things career stuff you know relationship i mean 
everything. And I basically, when I was thinking about who do I want to be in conversation mm-hmm. with on the for the launch of my book in my chosen hometown, which is Brooklyn, mm-hmm. you know, whose eyes do I want to be looking into? Who can see me and bring out the best of me when I might be nervous? I was like, there's no one else. It has to be Lupita. Lupita. So I asked her, and it was a big ask, but she came through, and it was Ooh. literally like black girl magic church. Yes. We blew the roof off of that church. I'm and sure people were feeling amazing. blessed and highly favored during that. <laughs> like, I would be, it, it's church for me, even hearing about it. And I'm also like, where was my invitation? I, I wish you were there. Girl, it was amazing. Time. People laughed and cried. Mm-hmm. We had testimonials. Ugh. My mother was there from California. I did my excerpt with her on the pulpit. I mean, it was, wow. it was an experience to behold. took us to back to the black church. It took us I took back. you back to the black church, which is where I was raised. And it's I talk like, about that in the book. Same. And you, you and I share a lot of similarities, you know, black church kids. Yes. And we were both mixed kids. Yes. You know, as mixed kids, you write in the book, we have to move through the world as chameleons. Yes. Um, and people perceive us as people that can fit into every environment. Yeah. I'd love to hear how you think that uh, characteristic has aided in your career so far. Well, once I embraced that as a superpower, mm-hmm. um, it I recognized that it has equipped me to be a bridge in the divide mm-hmm. between worlds, between black and white, Um, And because of this sort of ability to camouflage and ability to find my way into spaces and to fit in, but to bring a message through, Mm. I've found myself being a bridge between many different kinds of divides, you know, not just black and white, but also beauty and activism, Mm -hmm. Um, young and old, new media and old media. And it's also really strengthened the empathy chip because when you grow up knowing what it is to be an outsider, Mm -hmm no matter where you are, you really start to be able to detect who in the room feels like they're on the margins. Mm. And when, you're, when you do eventually have the power um, and the privilege of being a leader in that space, you can help pull those in the margins to the center and help, mm. help them bring their voices to mm-hmm. the floor. And um, that was part of kind of what I tried to do at my, during my time at Teen Vogue. And I will say, mo- we need more stories about yeah. the mixed race experience. Yes. Because when you look at the data, this is the fastest growing segment in America, and yet it's the most under-discussed lived experience. And and so many of our our firsts in Black America, in Black history rather, are most of the time mixed-race people, from Barack Obama to Halle Berry to Misty Copeland, the list goes on and on and on. And there's a reason for that, Mm -hmm. and it's really because of a colorism yeah. issue, to be honest, yeah. in our country. And, and, um, but there's so much beauty in, in yeah. the intersection of cultures. And um, I've really learned to embrace that over time. You know, mm-hmm. starting my career in black media at mm-hmm. Ebony and then crossing over to Glamour and Teen Vogue, I feel like I was able to bring a lot of, you know, black excellence mm-hmm. and, and our pride and telling our stories into these spaces yeah. where I feel like we needed it. Well, something I struggle a lot with is reaching your dreams at a young age, and what do you do after that? You know, Mm. becoming editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue was a dream. Yes, How did you summon the energy to keep dreaming, and what was that process like? I knew at 19, 20, 21, that for me, it would be magazines first, and then I wanted to be a best-selling author, and I wanted to move into TV and film, and I had dreams beyond this, but I never expected that this part of my career would happen so fast, especially for a small town girl, mm-hmm. a black girl, first generation college graduate. There's, I mean, there's no, I, I didn't even know to dream that big, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But I did know in my spirit that at some point I would hit the point where I would have to take a leap of faith. And so when I looked up and realized, you know, I've been fighting for a seat at the table. Now I'm at the head of the table and I'm only 30, but I've done what I came to do mm-hmm. and more. And I have other dreams to chase. It's time to give myself the permission to say, job, is, this mission is accomplished and I have more to do. And I hope that talking about that is, and, and, and just writing this book even, which is my, this is my first, t- I said, you know, I've, I've now had the seat at the table, now I wanna build my own table. Mm. And this is my first table. And I hope it reminds people that they can dri- dream even bigger than they ever mm-hmm. thought. And even if you've hit what you thought is like your pinnacle of, of success, 
there's even more. Mm. There's e- even more. Even more. And building your own table, I love that because I think people do think they just are working for a seat, but they don't realize you can build your own space. Yeah. And keep building spaces for other people. Absolutely. And I want to thank you so much for coming here and sharing space with me oh. in these shoes and this look oh. and with this beautiful book that I cannot wait to devour. So, thank Elaine, you thank you so for coming much. to AM to DM today. It's been such a joy. Such, such a, joy. a pleasure for me. Thank you. Oh, of course. And everyone, be sure to get a copy of More Than Enough, which is available wherever books are sold. Up next, more AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Miriam Elder. The untold story of the secret campaign to save LGBT people from ISIS. A truly incredible story about some incredible people. BuzzFeed News world correspondent Jay Lester Fader joins me now to discuss his story, how a house painter and army widow led the secret fight to save LGBT people from ISIS. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. I want to dive right into this story. How did you become aware of Majid and Alam and their story? I first learned about them back in 2015. We had been trying for a long time to figure out ways to report on those truly horrific um, images of particularly gay men being thrown off buildings by ISIS. And I'm sure people will remember there were a lot of images circulating at the time. And almost all of them were coming from ISIS propaganda accounts. And we didn't know whether they were actually what they reported to be, what were the contexts, were these people actually gay as they were claimed. We were trying to, we were afraid of just boosting the propaganda without having real information about what was actually happening on the ground. And it was during that time that I first learned about Majid Nahlam that they were finding out in real time what was happening, particularly inside of the city of Mosul, which was the largest city that ISIS controlled at the height of its power. Um, And I was really blown away by not only the detail that they had, but the passion they had for doing this work with LGBT people in one of the most dangerous parts of Iraq. And one of the things that you write uh, in the story is that they didn't even know what LGBT was before coming to this work. Um, So how did they get involved in this fight? Yeah, so it started before ISIS came along. Um, I think I certainly when I came into the story, I sort of thought that that ISIS was bringing a new form of violence that hadn't been seen in the region. Um, But the reality was, particularly as the LGBT violence was concerned, there had been what were called honor killings of LGBT people. When a family would find out that a family member was gay, there would be a lot of social pressure to, to kill that person. So back in 20, about 2011, 20, yeah, I think that's right. Um, they received word from a contact of theirs in Baghdad that there were LGBT people who were about to be the victims of an honor killing by their family. They went off to save them. And on the way back, as they tell the story, um, it turned out they'd, re- uh, they'd rescued a guy with his boyfriend and they kissed. And Majid called the person who had sent them on the mission and said, what is this LGBT thing? I thought it was a political movement and now these guys are kissing each other. Um, and from that moment, I think there was some, uh, some discomfort because in that part of Iraq, it was very frowned on and very dangerous to, to be gay. Um, but they came to really embrace this cause and have a real special passion and are willing to speak up for it in, in a variety of settings. Well, you write that uh, they were able to collect the stories of 87 people who were tortured or killed by ISIS for being LGBTQ. So why is that so crucial? So we're moving into a period now that even though ISIS still does remain active and there's a lot of fighting, there's a huge global conversation about what is the right way to seek justice against ISIS and for the, the crimes that ISIS members committed. And in in the context of international law, there's a history of having war crimes tribunals. Um, And there's an effort by lawyers that are working with OFI, particularly um, at the City University of New York and the women's rights group Madre, to try for the first time to see that these cases, the, the, the violence that ISIS committed against LGBT people, could be prosecuted as a crime against humanity. There's never been a war crimes prosecution or an international criminal law prosecution for a group that that were persecuting people on the basis of being LGBT. So this would be a, a huge legal precedent if we were able to have. And especially since we're living in a world where almost 70 countries still criminalize homosexuality, including a number of the countries that, that border Iraq. In order to say that this is not just you know, a bad thing, but it's to say that it's a crime against humanity, 
they have to will, would have to prove that it was systematic. Um, and so the number of cases that they've documented say that this was not just soldiers acting on their own or low-level officials, but there was a systematic campaign to persecute LGBT people. One of the cases that we write about in there uh, is about a lesbian couple that was first targeted by ISIS because the organization had found disciplinary records against them from their time when they were students at the University of Mosul. They've been caught kissing in a bathroom, were expelled. And it was because ISIS found those records that these women wound up on an execution order. These weren't sort of opportunistic crimes, but it was something they were really setting out to do. I mean, these stories will just take your breath away. Um, but uh, moving forward, how are things looking for the LGBTQ people who were able to escape ISIS but are now refugees? Yeah, well, obviously, people who were displaced inside of Iraq, it's, Iraq is, remains a very dangerous country to be LGBT. Um, but, uh, the, you know, the first gay couple that we write about in that story, they did make their way to Turkey, which is where a lot of LGBT refugees, not just from uh, Iraq, but from across the Middle East to go. And they chose back in 2015 to go illegally to Europe. Um, the, at the time, the waiting time for a lot of the LGBT refugees in the country was about two years to get resettled to a safer country. And there were ISIS members who were living in Turkey by that point, too. It was not a safe place to be. Um, that the situation for a lot of LGBT refugees has gotten worse. Um, at the time that uh, President Trump announced the first iteration of the Muslim ban back in 2017, I was in Turkey doing a story with a community of LGBT Iranians, refugees. And some of those had already been waiting for a while to be resettled. They've been accepted to come to the U.S., and suddenly things are frozen. Last I heard, people are still stuck in, in Turkey that we're counting on coming to the U.S. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for all of this reporting. Thank you so much for having me. And be sure to read this story. We're tweeting it out right now. Up next, we're responding to a few more of your tweets. Oh, hey there. Welcome back. And I'm so excited to be back because we get to read your tweets, but specifically your tweets about Meryl Streep, the madam, dame, everything. Everything, everything. I'm so excited about this Meryl Streep topic. Like, I, I'm here for it. And I love that we all love her so much. So much joy. So let's yeah. jump in. <laughs> we asked what should the rides be called at the Meryl Streep theme park. Matthew says, a death becomes her log flume that brings you through scenes from the film eventually ending and you diving into the fountain as she shoots Goldie Hawn in the stomach. <laughs> a log flume. Oh my God. It's yeah. so good. That's really creative. That is really good. That oh, is really Matthew. good. And Michelle added, the first ride would be Sophie's Choice. Of course. Easy. Well, Frightening, yeah. scary, gripping, all of the All things. of those things. Well, we are so excited to be at the Meryl Streep theme park when it does open. Again, commission us. Yes, commission but us. until then, <laughs> thank you to our guests, Paul McLeod, Karen Car J. Phillips, Rob Hodakinin, J. Lester Fetter, Arturo Castro, and Elaine Welteroff. We'll be back here at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day. See you then.